Chapter 18, Proud to be Insane. After taking a common-sense glance at all the apparent stupid insanity in the previous chapters, how is it not possible to conclude we and or our leaders are anything but insane? Supposedly, that is, if they're on our side. Obviously, in order for our leaders to expect us to accept their shockingly intrepid levels of deceitfulness and or lies, we're supposed to conclude they are either extremely daft or they believe we are. On the other hand, maybe it's both. As alluded to in earlier chapters, are there apparent insane actions, again, if they are for us? And our acceptance of them all part of an orchestrated master plan of sorts? Of course, without seeing a big picture, how can we ever arrive at any real truth and or conclusions? An essential ingredient to seeing and or realizing the big picture is the prevailing level of apparent insanity on both sides that demands some kind of outside psychological and or emotional manipulation. With that thought in mind, why would it not be possible for fantastic supernatural powers from very high up, that is, transdimensionally, to have turned our leaders and us personally into unwitting puppets? The name of this book. If so, could it also be these puppet masters are attempting to accomplish some ancient premeditated agenda that definitely does not have our best interests at heart? Could these beings also be responsible for dumbing of us down via a continual diet of lies, hence the strange adage the truth is stranger than fiction? Using such methodology, would they have not been able to effectively reduce human humanity to stupid, predictable pawns, unable to accept the real truth, even when plainly presented? If that be the case, how can we fight back unless we know who or what we're actually fighting? Let's once again, once again be reminded of Sun Tzu's advice in his book, Art of War. If we don't know who or what is fueling the plethora of insanity swirling all around us, Aren't we essentially already defeated? Again, exploring the who or what and why, not to mention how this is being accomplished, is the express purpose of this compilation. Bear with me as there's still a virtual mountain of evidence still to be investigated in order to bring it all together. To that end, in earlier chapters I shared my witness of the overwhelming reality of transdimensional beings. Of course, as with everything, there are two sides. This reality demands a malevolent, that is an evil, side along with the benevolent. Even though we can't touch or see them, they are doubtless real and very active. My hundreds of supernatural miracles and experiences have certainly removed all personal doubts. For me, malevolent beings attempted to kill me countless times, as while being saved by the benevolent that has rendered them as plain and real as the nose on someone's face. The big question here is just how the malevolent trans-dimensional puppet masters are accomplishing their subtle manipulation, i.e. puppeteering. Well, the answer is actually quite simple. To understand, we need only examine their fingerprints or footprints to see how their puppeteering manipulation has been and is being so easily accomplished. As to those fingerprints, strange as it sound, are most clearly visible in our own personal behavior. Of course, natural insanity is simply a multiplying of personal behavior. To illustrate the real presence 
and fingerprints of those transdimensional puppet masters in action, let me cite a good example. Have you ever done something you didn't believe you would or could ever have done or said? And then wondered why? Why did or why did you say what you did? Have you ever just exploded and lost your temper for no logical reason? It's very common in human behavior, but of one thing we can be sure, such behavior is not originating from our conscious minds. It's rationalized as just our subconscious acting out. But is that really true? What is subconscious anyway? How can we have a conscious mind that we are not control of? Hmm. Curiouser and curiouser to quote Alice in Wonderland. Along those same lines, how does a person rationalize the fact it's only the good, unselfish things we have trouble doing, while it's the evil or the selfish things we have no trouble doing at all? Why isn't it the other way around? After all, we are constantly told people are basically good, but if that were really the case, wouldn't it be the good things we naturally find ourselves automatically doing? Truth is, we invariably and naturally lean toward the selfish, not the unselfish as we like to kid ourselves. After all, a basic observation of natural human nature, we see overwhelming proof that humans really are naturally selfish, prone to evil, not the other way around. That said, any honest assessment of personal and national uh, behaviors reveals them to all be rooted in pride, selfishness, and greed. Interestingly, these are the very attitudes we find ourselves enslaved. Well, if we're honest with ourselves, that is. To illustrate the point, let me relate a reportedly true story of two Russian serfs who worked the land for a wealthy landowner in Siberia. As compensation for their work, they received a share of their produce. Unfortunately, a couple poor years reduced them to the point of not having enough to sustain them and their families through the long, hard Siberian winters that was fast approaching. As they agonized over their course of action, one brother suggested they ask the land baron for help. But the other brother rose up indignantly and shouted, I'll never go crawling to that SOB. I have my pride. As the story unfolds, winter began settling in, and they knew that upon full onset they would be snowbound for the remainder of the winter. The first brother, in desperation, swallowed his pride and followed his own suggestion, asking the land baron for help. Surprisingly, the baron felt compassion and gave the man and his family enough meat to survive the winter. The other brother, thanks to his pride, was found with his family the next spring, starved and frozen to death. How amazing how so many are willing to die to protect their pride. The very pride that kills us in the end, like the proud Russian serf. Again, the glaring irony here is the foolish brother's protection of his pride was so much more important than asking for food to save his family. That pride only netted him and his family misery, starvation, and death. With that thought in mind, what possible reason was there to defend what did nothing for him and his family except destroy them? That said, what exactly is pride and where is that spirit originating? Even though pride does nothing for anyone except to bring a temporary good feeling about oneself, it seems to be worth giving all for even life at times. In analyzing the why of protecting pride, I'm reminding of the, the anatomy of the common argument. By dissecting the average argument, we find the same sort of pride or insanity that killed the Russian peasant and his family. 
The typical argument always involves pride to one degree or another, the need to show or prove to the other that we are right about something. But the glaring question is, why? Why is that need so powerful? Considering an, an argument, then, isn't the real point of winning all about appearing intelligent and emotionally secure to the other, as well as being respected and or important? Aren't these the things we all crave in life and strive and attempt to achieve in one way by winning arguments? Let's be honest. If it weren't for these reasons, why would we bother? We just wouldn't care about winning arguments, would we? In fact, arguing at all would be rather pointless. Honestly, there would be nothing gained and only much to be lost in friendships, marriages, and family. Getting back to the anatomy of an argument then, upon winning, we walk away thinking something along the lines, I sure showed them, or next time they'll listen and won't argue with me. On the other hand, when we lose the argument, do we view the one who won as wise and intelligent as they kid themselves? Unfortunately, by winning an argument, just the opposite is accomplished. The loser generally walks away thinking something along the lines of, what an idiot or what a jerk. Considering the attitude of the loser, did the winner really gain the respect they were striving for by winning the argument? Truthfully, they generally reap exactly the opposite. The winner of the argument is now thought of in terms of contempt and or disdain. So, it seems if we wish to earn respect and honor, we need to lose the argument. By allowing the other person to win the argument, it leaves them walking away thinking, Wow, what a smart person that is to listen to me. Again, how amazing. The very respect and honor we attempt to gain by winning the argument is what we actually receive by losing one. Why then would we fight and struggle to win which nets us only contempt and dishonor? And amazingly, our irony is all this ironic and destructive behavior can be summed up in one word, which again is pride. Rather than exercising our pride, it makes so much more sense to maintain relationships by simply following or allowing others to express their opinions without argument. Sometimes it's easy to forget the old adage, one convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. As brought out earlier, in order for anything to be real in our lives, like love and relationships, it has to be personally chosen and fought for. Otherwise, it's just an illusion. How ironic in choosing to value, respect, and honor others, we actually give value to ourselves. So just where is this spirit of insanity or pride that really doesn't give us anything but temporary satisfaction originating? Did the Creator create us with that insane, selfish spirit? Or is it coming from somewhere outside of us? Speaking of pride, and stated very simply some 2,700 years ago, is the admonition, Pride goes before destruction. That's Proverbs 16:18. With that thought in mind, we can know that arguing and fighting, that is exercising pride, destroys relationships because it's all wrapped up in that destructive spirit. Although, obviously, pride destroys families and lives, as emphasized by the story of the Russian serfs. But it's not just people, but nations as well. It's rather fascinating how the pride, spirit of pride quite literally makes people and or nations stupid. But again, what is its origin? To help answer a major clue is the creature discussed in an earlier chapter. It's Job's description of a creature called Leviathan, or the dragon and its chief characteristic. 
in the book of Job, we find the description of that dragon. And there it says, to end that chapter 41, it says, On earth there is nothing like him which is made without fear. He or it beholds every high thing. He is king over all the children of, get this, pride. He's the king over all the children of pride. Right there is the origin of pride. How interesting. This creature is called the king or the angel of the children of pride. But doesn't being that king or malik in Hebrew over the children of pride establish it as the giver or author of pride? Or better said, insanity? Thank <laughs> you.